Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. So here we go. Good evening. We're uh, still in the series, this current lecture series, spring of 2022, which basically involves the Orthodox Jews in Galicia in the modern era, which, as we see now, is 1772, I guess, to 1942. After 1942, there are no Jews in Galicia. Okay. Tonight is the third lecture out of six. It's entitled... The Jewish Civil Wars in Galicia, 1790-1850, Part 2. As you can see, the sponsor is Steve Kaplan, honor of his parents. Howard is here actually helping us uh, with our tech side. Thank you all very much. And in general, I want to thank all the tech people for being much more efficient than myself. And without any further ado, we'll get down to business. As I said yesterday, Galicia became a place... <coughs> where different groups of Jews reacted differently to the new conditions of life, both the new political conditions, which meant they were ruled by the Austrians, in a rather isolated province. I mean, Galicia is nowhere before the railroad. You get it? I mean, you know, it, was, it was a back border for Now, not on the old kingdom of Poland, but once they make those stupid new borders, <coughs> they can't go here, can't go there, so it's really in the back of everywhere. And... Um, it was pretty bad economically down till the First World War. God only knows how much worse it would have been if there'd be no railroad. And there was a, a, what shall I say, a lack of extensive railroads. So I don't want to go into an economic history of the region, which there are whole books on, but you get the picture. Anyway, so they had to adjust to the new conditions, the political Austrian rule in a rather isolated province, as well as new intellectual conditions, namely <clears throat> the Austrian attempts to somehow westernize the huge Jewish population and to somehow penetrate and influence the world of Jewish cultural insularity. That's quite a trick. These different groups, now these are Jewish groups who are going to react in different ways. These different groups develop very different ways of reacting to new conditions <clears throat> because they, each group thought along very different lines than the others. And each group, each Jewish group thought the others the other groups were mistaken, were terrible, and even evil. I would describe these groups, which were not of similar size, as falling into three categories, as you can see over here. So if you ask who are the three, who make up the Jews, and there's a lot of them, there's a baby boom, I told you before. By the time you get to the First World War, it's close to a million. You see, it's like eight, nine hundred thousand. And that's not counting all the people who ran away to America and other places. I want to constantly emphasize that. So... You got your Hasidim, you got your Maskilim, you got your what I call Mitzbolulim. The Hasidim obviously are into intensification of cultural insularity. That's one of the main features of Hasidis. It's not the only one, but it's a very key element of it. That's number one. The Maskilim, as we shall see today, <coughs> the Galiciana, the Galician Maskilim, is a whole episode in the history of the Haskalah called the Galis, Haskalah of Galicia. Many books and articles about this. They were into intense Jewish culture but not with cultural insularity, which is interesting. And finally, these are the assimilationists. They want no Jewish culture at all. They're not converting, but they 
are Polish in every way or they try to be, or they're German in every way or they try to be. Okay? They just don't convert. Although, you can be pretty doggone sure by the time you get to the children and grandchildren, you know, a big percentage of them will convert. But okay. Um, let's take it. Hasidus, Hasidism uh, was a mass movement. The Haskalah was tiny. <clears throat> the Haskalah is a cultural, <clears throat> intellectual movement. How many cultural people do you know? How many intellectual people do you know? And then again, the Haskalah is all in Ivrit. How many Jews do you know, even if they have cultural or intellectual proclivities, can read Ivrit? I'm not talking about the Siddur, I don't alum. I'm talking about to read a book, article, you know, something serious in Hebrew, especially before the rise of the State of Israel, you know, way back when. The answer is a few. So the Haskalah will be tiny. Assimilation, the third option, started tiny, but in the course of the 1800s, it just grows and grows. Right? As, was the, as you and I have experienced in America and Baltimore and places like that in the course of the 20th century. Okay? The course of the 20th century. You know, you see a lot of people today in Baltimore, just use this as an example, or the Baltimore metropolitan area, they have nothing to do with Judaism whatsoever in their lives. They're not even interested in Israel, nothing. But you know and I know their grandparents used to live downtown or in Forest Park or Lower Park Heights or something like that, and they were interested in Jewish stuff. So you see this pattern, okay? Now, the Haskalah in Galicia, the Haskalah, is a fascinating in the intellectual sense in the important literature it produced, in its attempt to be very Jewish, at the same time tampering with fundamentalism, though not with nomianism. Contrary to popular belief, most of the Maskilim in Galicia, even the ones who were fairly radical, were Shomer Shabbos. They're observant. They're not orthodox like that, but they just live very traditional lives. They buy the kosher butcher and things of that nature. Now, um, here we have an attempt, or the attempt, because I'll tell you again, they're playing footsie with the fundamentalism. Is the Torah really from God? Is the Gemara really the Torah shall pay all that stuff? So here we have the attempt, which has popped up in the last 200 years from time to time, to create a vibrant, extreme left-wing Orthodox Judaism like you got with Avi Weiss or Open Orthodox Jewry today. That kind of approach. It seeks to be a vibrant, left-wing version of Orthodox Judaism. Now, in the 19th century, as we shall see, this proved a failure because the left-wing Orthodoxy in places like Galicia became conservative Judaism. That is conservative Judaism. It morphed into conservative Judaism. And conservative Judaism is, number one, a distinct denomination, something quite different than Orthodox Judaism. Number two, standing in the year 2022, it's a failure by its own definition. They're on the downswing. Uh, Bill and I just had this discussion the other day. And finally, it's episodic and dying. You know, I wouldn't bet too much money on the future of the conservative movement. They don't bet too much money on it. So... What is the future of such trends nowadays? Oh, all of a sudden, the case of Galicia, as a forerunner of this, becomes a very interesting topic. Right? So let's look at these masculine in the early 1800s who are intensely Jewish, 
but who can read foreign languages and are affected by what they read, and they do not compartmentalize. You see, an orthodox person, which you didn't have this type in Galicia, will say like this, this is what I learned in science, but this is what it says in the Torah. So when I'm in college, I say the world is 10 billion years old, but when I'm in school, I say the world is 5,000 years old. How do you work? I don't know, working. I don't know like that, you see? Or well, this is what I learned about the Chumash over here, but this is why I do the Chumash over here, and I put the two in two separate departments. The Maskim don't want to do that, you see? Now, one thing the Galician Maskilim had in common was an intense opposition to Hasidism, both in social terms as well as in religious terms. Socially, the Maskilim see the Rebbe's and their followers as charlatans who encourage cheating and intriguing. Religiously, they see Hasidism as introducing false ideas into Judaism, using fideism to foist superstitions upon the masses. That's the old fight that they used to talk about. This is a masculine kind of, uh, what should I say, encoding. It's the Rambam versus the, the, the Hasidim. This is the Munitzrufa, which is pure faith, that's a, you know, rational faith, the way they interpret it. And this would, this would alter everybody. And Hasidim would be a Munitzfila, false beliefs, you see? Because they're using fideism to foist superstition on the masses. You just believe. If the rabbi tells you, if, if they tell you this guy jumped over the moon, they just believe. If you don't believe, you're not from. The Maskin can't stand that, you see? Now, obviously, the Hasidim, for their part, reacted similarly. All the, all the Maskin, a bunch of Apikorsim, atheists, plain and simple, and nothing to talk about. I would divide these Galician Maskilim into two categories, A and B. A would be what we call social reformers. These are Jews who want to improve and reform Jewish society as they see it, not to make them non-observant, but to eliminate cultural insularity, to reform the education system as they see it, and to acquire European norms. The most famous was this guy, Yosef Pearl, who they just had a big conference in Israel universities about him, lived in Tarnopol, and was a big writer in Yiddish and in Hebrew and in other languages. And uh, he can't understand what's going on all around him. Why are all these people moving to Hasidus, and why the mass is so dumb? And he's always writing, he writes these uh, brilliant books making fun of the Hasidic movement. The Hasidim buy up all the copies. <laughs> Nobody gets to read them. They get, you can find one or two today, and they actually reprinted in modern Israel. Well, who's going to read something today? about 1816, about the, you know, the, the, the it's not a bestseller. And even, he even deigns to write it in Yiddish, which is a big no-no in the Haskell movies. I want people to read this. He starts his own kind of shul, which is what you and I would call an Orthodox shul with decorum. <laughs> you know, it was considered radical. He, he wants to make his own school, which again, will have the Moody Koshim, is somewhat similar to what we have today in the day schools. But his whole thing is like moving to the left, you understand? And we'll see later on, he's always writing to the, to the government, to the police, you should suppress the Hasidim, it's a dangerous cult, it's this, that, and the other. And they kind of, you know, treat him with a certain good nature, you know, file, what's the expression? <laughs> yeah, right. So, uh, but he's a classic example of someone who writes at great length and, and with great eloquence what he considers to be the social evils and the backwardness of the Jewish masses in Galicia in his time. Uh, 
So now the second category, Musculum, who also were observant, because believe it or not, this guy, with all of his bitterness, and he has a lot of bitter stuff against the front, especially the, the, the Hasidim, he was a Shomer Shabbos. He kept kosher. Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny, right? Now, um, the second category, Musculum, who also were observant, were those whose opposition to cultural insularity meant that they were very into contemporary high intellectual European culture, along with, not instead of Torah culture. Those persons actually that I'm talking about were Talmud Chacham, believe it or not. But I'm talking about being into European high culture, academic culture, intellectual culture, in German, because that was the cutting edge in those days, the German universities, particularly contemporary thought regarding history and philosophy. So here we are in the early 1800s. This second group of Musculum were genuine intellectuals, but they're always autodidacts. There's no schools for them to grow up and in, in, to attend. So it's whatever books they get a hold of and read. They usually come from well-to-do families. Therefore, they have the opportunity to have leisure time and to acquire books and to read. And they proceeded to create a literature in Hebrew that was a certain kind of cholent, composed of their Torah knowledge on the one hand, which was not inconsiderable, and their knowledge of contemporary secular philosophy history on the other hand. This Moscillic literature, always in Hebrew, became very well known across the Jewish world in the 19th century, particularly in Hebrew literate circles, and constituted an attempt, now listen closely, to create a Jewish culture on a basis other than a simple, simple fundamentalist gemar, gemar, gemar. Okay? In other words, they wanted a Jewish culture that was not identical with Torah culture, although not necessarily opposed to it either. We call this usually the Galician Haskalah, and it's a forerunner of the uh, secular culture of modern Israel. It's also the forerunner of modern academic university uh, Jewish scholarship. To, to use shorthand, it's, it's, the, it's the forerunners of Jewish history and Jewish historians and Jewish history books and things like that. Notice the enterprise were engaged at this moment. Now, these masculine were profoundly affected by the two fashionable trends in German intellectuality of that particular time. Today's this is passe, but I'm talking about at that time. And that's mainly Hegel, George Frederick Hegel, the famous German philosopher, who was the god of thought. And Hegel had his famous philosophy of history. And basically, uh, he combined history and philosophy into one Zach. And the argument very quickly, without spending a lot of time on it, because boy, can you spend a lot of time on this, uh, is that you see the, the workings, he doesn't use the word God, but you know, you see the working of the universal spirit uh, in the progression of history, <clears throat> okay? So if the human race <clears throat> has moved from primitive to more progressive, and that's his argument, then that must be what God wants or the universal spirit, and you have to be in conformity with that. It's caused a lot of trouble for Jews because Hegel is a Protestant, and therefore in his idea of progress, you know, Jews are back there. I really shouldn't do this, but I'll do it just for the heck of it. If you're Hegel, you do like this. Let's take a look at human history. You start with your uh, caveman, and then eventually they move to uh, uh, mating and marrying the person with whom they mate. So you, got, you move from individual cavemen to a family. Then a family becomes a clan over time. Eventually the clans form a bigger thing. And sooner or later, 
skipping some of the stages, you end up with a, like a kingdom or something like that, you see? And then eventually the kingdom starts against institutions, like your Hammurabi types or whatever. And then trouble is, of course, they're into all kind of pagan ideas. <clears throat> then comes Judaism, which talks about one God. But Judaism is overlaid with a lot of junk, you see? All these uh, laws and crazy things. And so um, eventually, the Judaism have it served its purpose, gets replaced by Christianity, uh, early Christianity, which takes the good stuff out of Judaism and throws the other stuff away, like a rocket ship going in the air and jettisoning what it doesn't need. But of course, the original Christianity is, is Catholic, therefore, it's still got a lot of paganistic and stupid ideas in there, and that's why you got a thousand years of your Middle Ages, but eventually, you get your Protestants that they do to, they do to, to Catholics what the Catholic did to the Jews. They keep the good of the bad, and naturally, this starts to lead. Once you got your uh, religion right, so don't be surprised if science starts to take off, you see, in your 15, 16, 1700s. And then you start to have a rational approach, and you create the modern state, which is like Prussia, because he's a Prussian, which is, first of all, Protestant, second of all, run by bureaucrats. And the definition of bureaucrat is a guy who's an administrator of a college education, therefore they can do this intelligently, you see. And we're heading towards the perfect police state, meaning I said police state in the positive sense of the word, not as we use it in America, in which the government, which knows better than you because they have the resources, you know, to do it. Like, this is, like I said before, this is the fight we just had in America about the masks. You know what I'm saying? Does the government know better than you when they tell you to do something or not? Should you listen or should you not listen? So America has a different tradition than Hegel. But the European tradition is we listen. Anyway, the point is, and now we get to here, we are today in Prussia in 1810, you know, and it'll only get better. So if you were in Disney World, we would just talk about this. Remember, it's a beautiful tomorrow. You know? Every day things are getting better and better. So that's the Hegelian uh, kind of thing. So where does Judaism fit along that? It's back there. <laughs> you see? If you're a Jewish student in college, you say, what the heck? You know? you're, 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 you're a little bit between the cavemen and the, you know, the Roman Empire. Something like that. And this led a lot of Jews, by the way, to drop Judaism, or to convert to Christianity, do all kinds of stuff like that. You should just know that. Uh, Karl Marx was a certain type of Hegelian, actually. So anyway, these things are completely unknown to most Jews, and they sure as heck were unknown to most Jews in Galicia in the 1800s, and they didn't give a darn about this stuff. Who cares what that German guy says in Berlin? What does he, what does he know? Well, the Moskilim read it, and they, are, they do care, because this is the latest stuff. So this is equivalent to uh, somebody like him reading the New York Times, and that becomes the gospel, you understand? So that's... That's, that's what happened. So uh, a big emphasis, what I just described, is on your interpretation of history. So historicism becomes the dominant theme and has remained so in many ways in terms of uh, defining civilization and cultures and ideas because historicism will tell you things are what their pasts were. You get it? We all talk like this. If I say, how do you do? I've never met you before. My name is Katz. What's your name? You could give me a dumb answer and say, I say, who are you? You could say, I'm a human being, I'm so-and-so old, I have uh, you know, so-and-so many teeth and this and that and the other, which would be an answer from a scientific perspective. But what I'm really asking is what? Where are you from? Tell me your history. Where are you from? Where are your people from? Where you grew up? Where'd you go to school? That kind of thing. So in other words, for me to touch you up, as they say, I really got to know your past. So just extend that idea across all knowledge. We get what they call historicism. Now, again, I repeat, 
these ideas were not penetrating into the Hasidic movement or something like that, but they all penetrating into a very small number of important intellectuals called the Haskalah movement, okay? Um, and therefore, you end up with uh, people like Leopold Ranka, the famous uh, Prussian historian, who basically says, if you get your facts right, you know actually how the past actually was. Get it? Which is not the way we look at it today. I just want you to understand. You know, there, there, was, there came later on in the 19th century called, I can't believe I'm doing this, <laughs> later on something called the crisis of German historicism, in which people say like this. I'll give you an example I'm talking about. <laughs> Suppose I say, uh, here's the easiest way. I'm going to write a book on the Battle of Gettysburg. I'm a Civil War historian. I'm a nuts over the Civil War. And I read every book there is on the subject. I traveled to Gettysburg, blah, blah, blah. And let's say I'm a good writer. I've written Pulitzer Prize many books. So I do my research, and I'm going to write a book 500 pages. Okay? And it'll be good stuff. What does that mean? It'll be based on facts, meaning memoirs, records, things like that. Best I can do. You never know. Best you can do. And now I'm going to write you a, a, a great book on the Battle of Gettysburg, which after all took over four days, correct? And had a lot of pieces to it. Have I written a scientific treatment of the Battle of Gettysburg? No, because there's no way you can be scientific about history. You don't have all the facts. You can never can. I would have to know what happened to every one soldier, every soldier, every second of every day. To be perfectly honest, I'd have to know what happened before then, how it affected things. I'd have to know how their stuff you know, affected anyone around them, what was the aftermath. The number of facts you know, leaps into the millions. And it's simple, it's, I'm not exaggerating when I say it's not possible to get a handle on You get it? So to speak, history of science is impossible. So what do I do? Here's what I do. I have a good editor. Right? Let's say I got a good press. From all the research I did, let's say for argument's sake, I did you know, uh, 150,000 facts. From all that, I put together the book in such a way, 75,000, about half the facts. That's a lot of facts in a book. Let's say uh, 25,000 facts. So what I did, I made a selection. As soon as you make a selection, it's a bias. You see? So there's no such thing as a history book that's not a bias. I'm just saying not, that's not, I'm not accusing anybody. That's endemic to the enterprise. It's the, it's the heuristic nature of the historical discipline. You get what I'm saying? You have no choice to make a selection of facts. Once you do that, we're into the old business. As I always tell my students, stand up and tell me about your family. Unless you're an idiot, you're going to leave things out. <laughs> Agreed or not? You see? So then we end up with the situation. You know, Hitler was a nice guy, liked his mother, good to his dog. You know, he built some nice roads in Germany. Then he died in 1945. Okay, everything I said was true. <laughs> yeah, but you left out something. Well, okay. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? In the selection of facts and what you omit, usually you omit the good stuff or the stuff that really has the meat. Okay, so. This was the era when all this started in the early 1800s. And it's happening in Berlin. It's not that far from Galicia. I mean, it's not there. But, you know, it's all, roughly speaking, Eastern Europe. We are hundreds of miles away. In addition, and more significantly, these Moskillen begin the enterprise <coughs> of reading and analyzing Torah literature from their perspective. Uh, not so much the Chumash in those days, but the Gemara and the Mishnah and so forth particularly, I would say, the oral law, the rabbinic literature. Historically, Noller's trying to use the, the tools of historical research to map out a literary history beyond simply saying, Rabbi Yudha Nasi wrote the Mishnah, Rabbi Ashi wrote the Gemara, and move on. 
What happened? How did it happen? What, you know, that sort of thing. Now, this does not have to be controversial, but there were many aspects of it that enraged the Haredim, both Hasidim and Misnagdim. One would be the ascription of non-Jewish influence to rabbinic texts. So you say, you know why the Talmud has this? It's a Roman law. Everybody, you know, they just copied it from the Roman law, or the Greek law, or the Persian, or the uh, Hammurabi, or this, that, and the other. That's very offensive to a religious sensibility. It comes from Hashem. Right? Another would be getting over-familiar with the Tanoim and Amarim, the kind of thing that Samson and Hirsch went crazy over. So you'll find people write a history book. It's like, it's, you know, Rabbi Akiva was a hothead. That's the reason, you know, he got involved with Bar Kokhba. We have a story in the Gemara where he punched somebody. Oh, you, know, you do like that. Rabbi Gamliel was a bossy type of individual. That's why he was fired. See what I'm doing? I'm getting chummy with these guys. You understand? I'm getting chummy with them. Who the heck are you to get chummy? Uh, now, it was very offensive, as I said before. Gretz particularly used to write like this, but he was in Prussia, not in Galicia. This is perhaps basic to the historical discipline, which strives for academic objective judgment. I emphasize the word judgment. Calling it the way you see it, non-obsequiousness, and even hegemonic discourse. If I'm talking about the Vilna Gun, for example, I'm in control of him. Because if I'm describing to you somebody, especially you don't know much about, I can make him do whatever I want. I'll use a code word from American contemporary culture that you'll understand what I mean in a second. George Washington and Robert E. Lee. This way, that way. Is he good? Is he bad? This is changing right now as we speak. You see what I'm saying? So it's up to the guy presenting it to say he's good or he's bad. If you think about it, this is very unfrum in that it lacks the factor of veneration that's supposed to undergird your, your thinking, your discourse about a guttle. Who the heck are you to say, Dane Hanyali, but Dane Lon Hanyali? You know, the Vilnagon was right and the Hasidim were all wrong, or vice versa. Who the heck are you to say such a I can guarantee you today, in a Haredi publication, they would never even touch that subject. You see? They'll say, he had this, he had this. We still, you know, it's not enough to, to judge. Now, in history, by the, if you write history, you have to make judgments. That's what it is. And you got to publish them, and you got to defend them. That's what the academic discipline is. So this made the masculine heretical to the from masses in the 1800s at the time we're speaking. In addition, history, the writing of history, is all about changing context. Right? If everything remained exactly the same, there's nothing to talk you know, the, Let's put it this way. Tell me the changes in transportation between 1800 B.C. and 1800 A.D. There aren't any. Right? Am I, maybe I, not that I can think of. It was a horse and buggy then. It's a horse and buggy then. Now, on the other hand, if you talk about the changes between 1800 and 1900, whoa. You see? So history is usually studying change and studying um, context, which is what I'm doing right now. In general, all literature, let's leave the Bible out for a moment. They didn't want to touch that. All literature has timely elements, elements which affect the content of the literature. Timely means because of the context of the time in which they live. In the case of Torah literature, the Haredim always say that the Torah, including the Gemara, is timeless. Okay? Timeless. Meaning, 
It's not subject to vigors. It represents eternal truths that have nothing to do with the fact that it actually was written at any particular time or place. Even though in reality, it's also timely, because it was written at some time in some place. Um, it is this point, I mean, just off the top of my head, uh, in the Mishnah and so forth, you find Greek words. Uh, you don't find Chinese words, because they didn't live in that part of the world. And be Greek, because Greek was the language of the, uh, at that time. The Rambam, on the other hand, doesn't use Greek words. The Yambam used Arabic words, because the Rambam was the time the Arabs were in charge. That's what I mean by the timely elements. Uh, it is this point the Maskilim stressed, which is not false, but the way they did it, the tone they adopted, the comparative religion language that they used, and the principal disdain that they had for cultural insularity made the Frum look on them as cynical heretics who do not believe in fundamentalists, fundamentalism, which isn't exactly true, but see how I'm going, eh, eh. And so the bottom line, they're atheists. That's what they said about them. That's what they said. So you have nothing to learn from these people. Everything they have to do is trafe, and so forth. To use simple English, the texts of the Gemara, beginning with the Mishnah, were written by men in historical time, so they're not divine in origin, meaning the text itself is not divine in origin. We would say that perhaps about the Chumash, you see, but not about that text of the Mishnah or the Tosefta. This was perhaps not stated baldly. They wouldn't come out and use the words I just used, but it's very heavily implied. Therefore, you had the big anger of the Frum, both the Misnagdim as well as the Chassidim. For their part, the basically conservative, muscular historians didn't really want to talk about it. Because if you would ask one of these guys, do you really believe in Torah Mesina? Like that. <laughs> right? Now, they don't look, as they say before, they don't look like a Bakusim. This is uh, a Nachman Krachmal, or Enoch, who wrote the big book, Murray Nabuchi Azman. This is Shia Shlomi Yehuda Rappaport, who wrote all the original Jewish history books. This came to be, look, oh, this all stuff is all trade. He is the son-in-law of the Kitsos, and he basically wrote the Avni Meluim. If anybody's in Yeshiva, they don't know what I'm talking about. These are famous books of Lambdas. You see? But what are you writing this history? Why are you into Hegel? You see, like that. Okay? We will return to them. So the Hasidim, who are growing, totally discountenanced them, and the Visnagdim, in Galicia, viewed them with cold suspicion, but they read the writings. The Hasidim, by definition, were a dynamic element in the society, especially the young Hotspurs, who then, like now, enthusiastically played dirty tricks. We'll, we'll see. They, this confirmed the masculine in their opinion of the Hasidim as a cancer, and so both sides played dirty pull on the other. Okay? Thus, the masculine, especially this guy Joseph Pearl that I showed you before, wrote all kinds of denunciations of the Hasidim to the Austrian police and authorities, asking the authorities to suppress Hasidism through the police power. Here's the books he wrote. This is, look what it is. He wrote a, a memo for the Austrian government in German, but this is a translation, Al-Mahus Kar Hasidim. What the Hasidim really about. You don't realize what a terrible group this is as causing to, you know, disruption and falseness, and the whole thing should be locked down like in Russia or something like that, right? What's this? This is Rappaport, who also wrote the same thing against the Hasidim. Now you'll say like this, oh, you're being Muslim and Malshinim. The Hasidim did the same thing. It's always a question of who's, who's the ox of being gourd. You see? It's, it's, it's wrong unless I do it too. You see? Now, the interesting part is, I mean, let, let me get it straight. 
do you think it's Mesira to inform on Chaim Walder? Because that's the way they viewed it, right? If you, uh, a molester. Oh. Okay? Is that being a Moser? Now, by the way, many used to say it is. Uh, that mood has changed. It was crazy to say, but you know, it changed. Um, you have these uh, cults, you know, you follow in the paper with the guy was in Nicaragua or wherever he is. You have these groups. You can't just say because the guy has a beard and something like that. You know, if it was my kid being sucked out, I'm going to call the cops. If my kid is being uh, molested or hurt or something, like, I'm going to call the cops. What at the Masira? Not on this. You see, like that. So just put the shoe on the other foot. If you're a Moscow like him, you see the rise of Hasidim, the bells, and the, and the, the Rizhen, and the other. Oh, it's terrible. Uh, I'm calling the cops. So they didn't see it as something bad. Uh, interestingly, the Austrian authorities were not interested. You know, they always put in the file without comment, uh, part of the records. So we have all these records today. And they were discovered a few generations later, and they found all these people that wrote denunciations and things like that. But nothing ever came of it because the Austrian government made, made a decision long ago that as long as something is part of traditional Judaism, they're not going to get involved in intra-Jewish fights. Yeah, they did. The Misnagdim they simply had a contempt for. And they weren't opposed because the Misnagdim was not a dynamic movement, as we shall see. Right? So they just started as decadent. But the Hasidim were not decadent. They already started something big. Um, now, by the way, the Hasidim had their bag of dirty tricks. Okay? Um, there's a very famous incident with the Yeshua Siakov, who was a, a big rabbi in Lemberg, Ornstein, from a very wealthy and long-standing aristocratic rabbinic family, going back for hundreds of years. A lot of them had the position of chief rabbi of Lemberg, who's like a, almost a family plum. And he was what you call a big posig and so forth. And the Hasidim, when they found out that those two guys whose picture we had before, Krochmal and Rappaport, it were, it were, and a couple other guys, were in town, they wrote up, like you find in Jerusalem, Teddy Pashkavilim, you know, uh, signs on the wall and says, the, the chief rabbi, Ornstein, hereby puts all these guys in harem. Nobody should have anything to do with them, all the rest of it. They complained to the cops. The cops called in the chief rabbi. said, who gave you the authority to do this? He said, I don't know. It's the first I hear about it. You know? And it was very embarrassing. And then they said, well, you have to make a speech the coming Shabbos, you know, in which you come out in favor of Lumuri Chol, uh, you know, and uh, 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 less cultural and salarian, all the rest of it. And it was like a joke because, you know, he could only talk Yiddish. So, so, and all the Austrian police officials came. And he really was, the, was the, the sufferer, you get what I'm saying? Because he didn't start the whole thing. And uh, it was a big chilash, it's very well known. Uh, so what's that all about? That's a bunch of Hasidic guys just saying, you know, let's cause some trouble. You see? Um, and uh, the, the guy I showed you before, Shia Shlomo Yehuda Rappaport, who was the, uh, uh, the big scholar. He basically had found in modern Jewish history, you might say, in many regards. He, he wrote a whole bunch of famous um, biographies of rabbinical figures from long ago, in which, in the best German style, there's one line of text and 100 lines of footnotes. <laughs> you, get it? You, you can fall into that trap if you don't watch out. Uh, and he was very smart, and Talmudically learned that he could wipe the floor with most people. I mean, you get rid of the Abdi you know, just like that. 
but nevertheless, he had a reputation among the Hasidim, right or wrong. He's a total atheist. He's beyond, beyond, you know. Uh, and the Maskilim, this guy, Joseph Pearl, got him elected rabbi in Tarnopol, which was an important town. And uh, the Hasidim put tray for food in his pantry and then claimed they didn't keep kosher. Uh, they put a big cross on the stender. They put a bucket load of tar. They poured it on a seat. They broke his windows. They interrupted his speeches. No, that's what I mean by dirty tricks. And if he was a tough individual, so he might, you know, tough it out. He was, you know, intellectual type guy, high strung and so on and so forth. Came from a rich family, wasn't used to this sort of thing. And so they basically drove him out of town, which is what they wanted. He complained to the Hassam Sofer, believe it or not, who was the big rabbi in Pressburg. Hassam Sofer was supposed to be respected by everybody. And the Hassam Sofer said, leave the guy alone. He's a Talmud Chacham. It's funny. You would, you, you'd be surprised to see that. Because many people think the Hassam Sofer was extreme ultra-Orthodox and so forth in the modern sense. But he actually was extreme ultra-Orthodox in the old sense. In the old sense, if somebody's a real scholar, a real Talmud Chacham, you have to give him respect on that alone. If Sheer Rappaport would come out and say, I don't believe in God or something like that, that's a different story. But he never did anything like that. Therefore, uh, leave me alone. I've got the backing of the most ultra-Orthodox rabbi. Hasidim don't care about that. You know, the Hassam server was a misnagat anyway. Uh, he was. And, uh, you know, compared to where they are, Pressburg, where the Hassam server was in Hungary, was almost like, almost as bad as uh, near Tumut or Shemar Muna, you know, compared to them. That, that, you know, that, that, that's how he looked at it. So it's strange, but that's what it was. Uh, and eventually Rappaport, you know, just leaves town and flees. He ends up being the chief rabbi of Prague. Prague, by that time, it's very westernized. It's on the way down. And so the person who was not from over here is very from over there. We get it? That's how it worked. But, but because the conditions changed. And he was a rabbi for 25 years. He presided over appearance, a, a period of great decadence in terms of Judaism, which you know, fritted away there because he wasn't one of these Sam Stranfield Hirsch types. Um, but he had a reputation 50-50. Depends who you ask. Is the guy from? Is he not from? Just give me an example. The chief rabbi of England uh, got a smicha learned under him, Adler. You understand? That was considered from. He was considered from guy. So it always depends, as we know, in Orthodox Judaism today, uh, where you're talking about. Something may be considered uh, very religious in uh, Kentucky, but uh, in uh, a New Square it wouldn't. You see? So that's how it goes. Now, what emerges from all this is that the Austrians who ruled the province presided benignly over their Jewish subjects, would not interfere in internal Jewish affairs except to prevent one Jewish group from messing over another Jewish group, which is interesting because the emperor, I told you, was an extreme reactionary, extreme reactionary. Uh, his time, you know, you're not, have, you're not supposed to have any political opinions. Franz I, he's the guy that they wrote the uh, anthem for. What we today call Deutschland der Rallis was originally Gotter Haltel, Kaiser Franz. And uh, he's a very tough individual. He had concentration camps for the political prisoners, things like that, and Munkach, believe it or not, because that was the end of nowhere, so you know, that's where you send them. And it's a famous story. He had a doctor who gave him an examination, and afterwards the doctor said, Your Majesty's Constitution is in good shape. And he said, 
It's a good thing you've been my doctor for 20 years. Otherwise, I have you thrown in jail for mentioning the word constitution. <laughs> so uh, with all that, he wanted the Rechstadt, which is a state of laws. It's not arbitrary power. There are laws in the books. Now, he can make the laws. He can change them. But as long as the laws in the books say that Judaism is a tolerated religion, even though it also says that Jews have to do this and Jews have to do that, it's true. But as long as Judaism is a tolerated religion, you can't move to uh, end its, 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 its uh, legitimate status. And one group of Jews should leave the other group of Jews alone. This is interesting. Therefore, the Haskalah grew, but so did Hasidism. And Hasidism grew in much greater numbers than the Haskalah. Uh, because Hasidus, by definition, is a mass movement. If it takes off, you get thousands and thousands of followers. And Galicia became, already in the early 1800s, a happy hunting ground for Hasidus. I mean, you know, it's, it, it, it's what it is. And the Misnagdim were like very uncomfortable with all this, but they had no choice but to live with it. Just to give an example off the top of my head, there's a famous story, there was a famous Misnagd, Rabbi Shlomo Kluger, who was in Brody, which was not a Hasidic town, and was a very great, uh, you know, uh, rabbi, big scholar, wrote a lot of responses and so forth. He has one book called Elf, Lechol Shlomo, he has a thousand chubas, a thousand responses in one book. Uh, and he has that famous question, somebody got sick in the town, and uh, his, his medical condition is real bad, and so the people in town hired somebody who wasn't Jewish to ride Pony Express to another town 15 miles away, because the Belgian Rebbe's there uh, visiting on Shabbos, and he should give him a bracha. You understand? And they did for Pekuch Nefesh. Now you understand, the ta- and, and for the Misnagdim, for the Talmudic law, Pekuch Nefesh means like medicine, uh, you get a doctor, something like that. And, and we all know that human life takes precedence over Shabbos. How do you justify you know, going to somebody, you know, for, but what's he supposed to do? He can't say it's also because everybody does this. And, you know, it's a Hasidic. The world he's living in, you know, so he just hmm, hems and haws, and, you know. and the post, the, the postscript of the story, but I don't, I, it's a Hasidic postscript. It's a Hasidic postscript, you don't know if it's true. Postscript is that the Baal's Rebbe got it, he was very angry that somebody had done this, it's like Machal Shabbos, but then he said something like this, he said, in order to make it not Machal Shabbos, I have to cure him. You get it? So it was because never, and the guy recovered. So I don't know, you know. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's a good tale. And by the way, it might be true. Okay. So I'm just trying to show you the tensions that would exist over there, which wouldn't happen in Lithuania proper because this area is all misnogged with very few Hasidim. But in Scalicia, it's everybody side by side. They're all over the place on top of each other. So that's how it goes. Galician Hasidism was really reactionary. We always talk about the Hassam Sofer as saying, but that's not actually true. The Hassam Sofer did say it, but he didn't carry it out. There were a fair number of innovations and exceptions that he made. For example, he said, oh, you can't speak in German, you can't give a sermon in German. So, but it's well known that, you know, there was one shul in Pressburg where he had modern type of Jews, and so he got a guy who was a very from speaker like Friend, you know what I mean? Feisch. Uh, 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 Fleischmann or something like that escapes me. And he said, you know, you can, you can go in that shul because they need to hear a sermon. They hear it in German. 
I'll say it again. The guy was very from, so it's not a question of content. But you're not supposed to have a German sermon, you see, as opposed to Yiddish. But he was flexible. He had some guys in his yeshiva who went to college. It's, it's a, something of an exaggeration. But the Rebbe's in Galicia were very reactionary. You know, they, they don't hear nothing. Okay? They're the ones who really say, even though the Hasidism is kind of new, but that's not the point. See? You know, they view it as buttressing the old. Now, uh, it's interesting. Hasidism, I say before, was huge. And therefore, the 19th century, the period we're talking about, the 1800s down to the First World War, was a certain type of golden age of Hasidic dynasties who were not bothered by the Austrian authorities. Not really. You know, like in America, you know, uh, the, the state authorities might uh, chep them here, there, little things. But overall, this guy could be a Rebbe, and, and have a palace, as some did, and have followers come and go, this and the other. And as long as you have what you call law and order, because I didn't say anything about breaking the law. You see? There's nothing against, there's nothing, uh, how should I say, illegal for 10,000 people to come to some guy's town for Rosh Hashanah, as long as they don't hurt anybody. You see? And so you could have this here. In Tsarist Russia, the condition is much worse. And the regime much more suspicious. And they put all kind of, um, how should I put it, restrictions and things like that. As we all know, Russia is Russia. Galicia was not Russia. That wasn't a paradise. There's still rules from top down. And, you know, you don't want to hear any uh, liberal uh, political ideas. Well, the Hasidim are not into liberal political ideas. You've got nothing to worry about. You see? So, uh, at the same time, there were also a very large number of Galician Jews from Hasidism was repulsive on many levels. I'm talking about a group that definitely wanted their children to get a good secular education. Partially for Parnosa, you know, they want their kids to go to college, as we would say today. There were two big universities in Galicia and the two big Polish centers in Lemberg and in Krakow. Right? As a matter of fact, the Krakow University is one of the oldest in the world. And uh, you can go there, you can become a doctor, a lawyer, a CPA, and all that kind of stuff. Partially, they wanted this to become a civilized European. Because the 19th century, which lasts until the First World War, was the century when European culture was held in extremely high regard. And you can understand why in the 19th century, because Europe is a place that all the science happened. Um, America is like part of Europe in that regard, you know what I mean, Western civilization. That's where all the, 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 the scientific progress, you could argue political progress, took place. Not in the other continents, you see? That's why the Europeans were able to use their knowledge of science to physically conquer and take over all the other parts of the world. If you ever look at a map of the world in 1914, it's like 10 countries own everything. Right? Just next time you have nothing better to do, Google a map of Africa in 1914, and you'll see the Belgians, the British, the, the, the French, the Germans, the Portuguese, Italians even, they owned the whole doggone thing. You know, there's only like one country that was not. And something similar to that in Asia, you know how big the British Empire was in those days. The French had a big thing. So you can understand that if you're living in Galicia and you're not a Chassid who's committed to anti-modernity, anti-Westernism, I want to be part of that. Okay? I want to dress like them. Uh, you know? Now, let me put it this way. You and I today are in part of this culture. You get it? Unless you want to be Hasidic and dress totally different, 
Everybody, to some degree or another, is part of this culture. Now, by the way, the Misnagdim were not immune to this, as, in, as is the case today. And as time went by, this is something I hope to talk in the fifth lecture about. It's very interesting. Even the Hasidim, this is a screwball story, but I'm just going to give you, uh, you know, uh, stimulate the appetite, whatever the expression is. The Hasidim, as the 1800s went by, became very impressed with European culture, um, but for their daughters, not for the boys. And uh, this led to all kinds of problems, which to us today seems like crazy, because you could have the most ultra-ultra-Orthodox, super-duper Jewish mover, Chassid, in Galicia, I mean, super-duper, and he would never let his girl you know, read Chumash or anything like that. Uh, this is a world in, in which Basiaka was a radical left-wing thing. So they wouldn't let their girls read anything Jewish, but they had no trouble sending them to a Polish high school, gymnasium, or university. And the expectation was, when they hit around 14, 15, you know, when they get married, they'll drop all that shtus, and now the, and they'll shave their head, and they'll become good Hasidic wives, and move away. It was just like, just like a, a phase. You see? So, I mean, it's interesting, because it was not a case of keeping them, how should I say, uneducated, dumb, and barefoot. They are giving their kids a very good European education, Polish, German, otherwise. It's weird. had to do with their attitudes that you can't teach girls anything Jewish. And they didn't. But I'm just trying to show you it's a marker of how powerful the respect for European civilization was at that time. This, of course, is unthinkable today. Like, show me a, a Satmar Chassid who said, oh, I want my daughter to get a good knowledge of American history. You know, it's, or, or, or in Israel, B'nai Brak. You know, it, 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 it doesn't even start, you see? So you've got to put yourself, as I said before, always in terms of time and context. The Galicia, in this regard, was very interesting uh, in the 19th century. How many foreign visitors visit Galicia and then come, Jews and not Jews, and come back and they say, I don't understand it. I see a couple. They're both like 20, 30. He's dressed like schlump de la bump, you know? With a, not to see in America as a prosperous, prosperous. And so you see somebody Hasidic, if he has a strimal, it's good, it costs a lot of money. It's a fancy schmancy. And his whole garb on Shabbos is high quality clothes. And that's what it was over there, you understand? It was a schlump de la bump. Now, because that's what, his wife will be dressed according to the latest Paris fashion. Now, she'll have a shaitel and a shaved head, but, a, but in other words, the dress and all the rest, and they said, I don't get this. <laughs> you see? So it's, it's funny how these things played out. Now, um, what happens, therefore, was this. The small towns and villages, the Hasidim took over, and different communities, as I told you the other day, belonged to different dynasties, sometimes to two or more dynasties. So the fur is always going to fly, as I mentioned yesterday, of who gets control over what. And... You have to understand, to live in a Galician village is boring. There's no TV, there's no internet, you know, no newspaper, nothing. It's boring. So if a Hasidic Rebbe comes in once or twice a year, it's Barnum and Bailey. You see? I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a whole business to come for Shabbos. 
Now you see once in a while they come in Baltimore like that. But imagine, you know, in a, in a time when there was nothing happening. And first of all, all the politics that they're talking about back and forth, and they're going to size up the Rebbe, they're going to size up his wife, they're going to do this and the other, and especially if there are two or three different dynasties, are these guys going to go and attend the Tish? And it could be that this week the Orioles come in, it's a big deal, and three weeks later the Yankees come in, and, you know, which one? <laughs> you, you betrayed our cause. I saw you at the, uh, at the wrong Tish or something like that. This makes life... Interesting, it's hopping, you get it? And people say, do you remember five years ago when uh, you were this big, I took you to the Rebbe, he gave you this and this bracha, or he didn't, or for him, he said a bracha with five words, and for him, he had a bracha with seven words, or this one talks to women, and that one doesn't talk to women. This was the, the stuff that made life sizzle in that world, okay? Now, um, you always have turf wars at the edges, as I said before, between the different uh, groups. And you still do, right? It doesn't bother Hasidim to have internal sign quarrels. It's, it's, it's what makes life interesting. So without going through names, at the present time, there are a couple of big machloks and going on in various dynasties. And uh, it just makes life interesting, you know? Now, in the cities and larger towns, however, the Misnagdim controlled the main synagogues, and the Hasidic groups had these shtibbles, you see. Under the Austrian law, only the chief rabbi, which was called the Av Bezdin, who had to be elected, was a legal officer with legal responsibilities. <clears throat> For example, they kept the metrical books. So this is very East European. Uh, births and deaths, the record of births and deaths and marriages and divorces are uh, in American, you read in City Hall. So in Europe, it wasn't City Hall, it was um, the local clergyman, the priest, the rabbi, this, that, and the other, designated by the state. So if it's a Catholic situation, there's always a guy at the top of the pecking order, you know, he'd be the bishop, whoever is appointed by the hierarchy, and he's responsible to the state. So you're going to, you have to, and you have to take an oath of office and all the rest of it, and you have to discharge your responsibilities. So if someone's born, because the army has to know, the state has to know, you know, who's born, who dies, who's this, that, and the other. And that was your records. If you're Greek Orthodox, you have the Pravoslav, you have the Greek Orthodox guy. If you're Jewish, you have the official rabbi. That's one of his main jobs in the Russian Empire and the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And you've got to keep your things straight, and there's penalties if you cheat. The other rabbis of Shtibol, they don't really exist, you see, in, in, in their legal uh, status. So um, uh, the Kehillists, therefore, did exist, although they were stripped of their coercive powers way back in the time of the Emperor Joseph II, but they still had legal standing like the Gemeindes in Germany. It's not like America where communities have zero legal standing. I mean, we do have a thing in Baltimore called, for example, the Associated Jewish Charities. And there are synagogues and all the rest of it. But Jewish community doesn't exist. Now, we could decide, theoretically, that all the Orthodox children in Baltimore get together and create one big community. It's possible. But it wouldn't be a legal body that the state of Maryland would, you know, would back it. You understand? They may be subject to some, some regulation, but they wouldn't have power. The, Eastern, the European tradition is very different. The United States of America, I never get tired of reminding people, is the only country in the world that has separation of church and state. All the countries in Europe, even the liberal ones, if you're talking about the level of law, they do not have separation of church and state. The state interferes with and subsidizes and regulates um, all the religious groups, and that's how they like it over there. 
Now, I wouldn't say that England or France or Holland, you know, it's, it's a free country. They simply don't have the Jeffersonian tradition of the government deliberately cutting itself off legally from, um, from any connection with religion, religious groups, I should say. Uh, it certainly was not the case in Austria-Hungary in the 19th century, obviously. So there were communities. These communities controlled the budget from local taxes. So in addition to paying your taxes to the Austrian government, you also paid your taxes, whether you liked it or not, to the local Kehela, uh, which was watched by the state. And in practical terms, if you don't like the system, any dissatisfied Jew or non-Jew could complain to the authorities. What? I was mistreated by the community. And uh, the petition, remember it was a dictatorship, it was an absolute monarchy. But it's not what you mean that there's no redress. It's just not the kind of redress that we would think of. You could always send a petition that was a legal channel for the Vox Populi in the empire. And you couldn't even ask for an audience with the emperor. Especially once they got the train. A lot of people did that. And the Kaiser of Austria-Hungary would set aside a certain amount of time every day. It's funny. And meet with people directly like Abraham Lincoln used to do. I mean, you could say no. You know, and he could decline to meet with you. But it's surprising. Even Franz I, people like that, you know. He'd get Hungarians coming in, Romanians coming in, this, that, and the other. Maybe you have five minutes. I mean, you know, depending on the case. It might be that you only, have, you only have five minutes, or maybe longer, depending. But you get your five minutes. Okay? Now, for a Romanian peasant to travel all the way across the empire to Vienna, I'm not so you know, sure it's going to happen. But you do have that channel. What all this meant was that no Jewish group could stop another one from doing its thing religiously. So there were reformed temples in Krakow and Lemberg, the two largest cities, plus a few conservative synagogues in Tarnopol and some other cities. Now, when I say reform and conservative, I mean reform and conservative Nusach Galicia, not Nusach Germany. Okay? Uh, these are, the other Jews in the community were horrified at these synagogues, but they realized it's part of the community. There wasn't in Galicia anything like happened in Hungary or in Frankfurt where they have Austria, you know. The Orthodox are seceding and separating and forming their own. That, that didn't exist in, in Galicia uh, for a whole bunch of reasons. The main reason I'll talk about in another time was that there was no movement to actually change Judaism. They just wanted to introduce reforms into the synagogue services, as we'll see in a second. And um, basically, the firm Jews acknowledged, look, there is a certain percentage of the population who didn't want regular Orthodox shuls but who aren't challenging the Orthodox character of the Kehillah, so don't stir up a hornet's nest. To use modern Hebrew, if you're doing them kafahom harkegegis, you'll end up with a igalazov. If you try to force people, you'll end up with it blowing up in your face. So to tell you the truth, in America today, for example, the Satmar doesn't go and say, oh, all the Reformed Jews have to close down the temple. They simply say, we have nothing to do with you. Do we do our thing? That's a different uh, a state of mind. So the different groups existed in the same town side by side with radically different notions of what Judaism should look like. And you just have to, you know, get used to it. Uh, this is quite different than we had in many other places in Eastern Europe. Now, a word about the Misnagdim, okay? Uh, Hasidus is a dynamic movement. You can like it or dislike it, a dynamic movement. The Misnagdim in Galicia was Stagnant traditionalism. Stagnant traditionalism. They didn't have yeshivas there. They didn't develop in, in Galicia 
some kind of form of what we call the Lithuanian yeshiva, which has a certain dynamic quality to it, which has proved in the 20th century to be the only dynamic institution in the world of Orthodox Judaism. That's quite a statement I just made. You see? It's the only dynamic institution. And when I say the yeshivas, I mean the yeshivas gadols, the yeshivas gadolans, the base sacrifice, everything comes out of that. And that's all the other things that kind of fall apart. Um, but you didn't have uh, any of the kinds of uh, responses to modernity that popped up elsewhere in Europe, which, which created the modern Orthodox world and gave to the term orthodoxy this kind of uh, dynamism which helped it wither, withstand rather, the pressures of modernity. Now, um, what I mean is, we're talking about the Misnagdom in Galicia. They didn't have Hasidism, that's one of the classic responses to modernity, correct? Like I say, but you say what you want, but they've done a pretty good job of swimming against the tide of all modern culture for the last 200 years. Um, they didn't develop in, in Galicia no modern neo-orthodoxy like Sam Sreville Hirsch. Okay? Term der Hertz, as they call it. And when there's an attempt early in the 20th century to try to set something like that up, by the father of Leo Young, by the way, the Hasim basically tar and feather him. Okay? So that doesn't happen. There are no Hungarian yeshivas there on the system of the Chassam Sovereign, which you just have many yeshivas, which basically serve as kind of high schools in which you get this intense indoctrination and passion like you had in Pressburg and all the things in, in Hungary. And there certainly weren't any Lithuanian-type yeshivas in which you have this high elitism and intellectuality. And these are the four trends. I did this talk many, many years ago. It's online now. That was my first uh, season. And uh, those are the four things that developed which proved successful in withstanding the uh, blandishments of modernity, nothing else proved successful. Okay? So in other words, modern orthodoxy didn't survive in the 19th and early 20th century. See, to take one example. Uh, and so uh, there was nothing that developed in Galicia among the Misnagdim, to use our language, that would engage the young people in any strong way. So the old school prevailed all during the 19th century, and the old school means that the families with money and scholarship monopolize all the positions, they get all the kibbutim, everything was run on the base of old boy network, uh, protexia, nepotism, and all that business. Yes, at the top there were some big scholars, you had the Shalom Meshiv, or Shalom Kul, you had famous rabbis of there, a few, you understand? But this rabbinate in the Misnagdic world in Galicia possessed a funny charisma, an institutional charisma, a distant charisma. In other words, he's the biggest rabbi over there, but you know, he's got nothing to do with you. You see? He's got nothing to do with you. I read a story once, a guy was writing about his father, and he said, you know, uh, Schiff, uh, Morrison and Schiff, and Rabbi Salvechik, he used to give him the Heksher. And his fa- this is what he writes. He said, my father is a businessman. He didn't know nothing, you know. But, you know, Rabbi Salvechik used to go once a month up to inspect the plant in New Hampshire. And I was always wondering, I'm growing up, he said, was my father and my uncle, what did they talk to him about? Three, three hours in a car with Rabbi Salvechik, who's like an egghead to an egghead, you know. Look, they have nothing to talk about. And they said one time, well, come with us in the car, you'll see. 
and he said, and they pick up, they pick him up at his house to go up to New Hampshire, and Rabbi Zevach gets in the car. And he says, "New Harry, what's up? back in the Red Sox." <laughs> you know okay, that wouldn't happen in Galicia. You see, it's not happening in Galicia. You talk to the Sholamishev, to Shlomo Kluger, to Marsham Berjanarov, and ain't got no small talk like that. You see, and so that's what I mean by stagnant. Well, it doesn't offer any help to the poor and downtrodden who suffer so terribly from poverty. You see? The face of this whole uh, stand-padism, this decadence, were the rich from Jews who formed the candle tax. Because we said, the Austrians set up this tax where you have to pay all for, for all the neighbors. But they farmed it out to Jews, meaning a Jewish guy would, a rich guy, a from guy, who had a nice Shabbos table. And I'm sure gave money for the synagogue and maybe the Sefer Torah and all the rest of it. But he and his agents, because it's business, they'll go to every house and say, have you paid your tax for the candle you're using for, I mean, to poor people because uh, of yard site or because it's Friday night and Shabbos. And she would like to, as we understand, she would like to light a candle for all of her children. She would like to do that. But she realizes if she does that, she's going to hit so much for the taxes, you know, it'll kill her. And so you can tell me the anguish that she feels. I think, I think we can understand that. Or Hanukkah candles, things like that. So what kind of a jerk is this? No, he's not a jerk. He's actually the Rosh HaKol. He could be a very important person. You see what I'm saying? He's a big, you know, gets all the kabudim. He gets shlishi and so forth. This was the problem with the misnagdu. You see? So the atmosphere was thick with traditionalism, but as I said before, traditionalism, as historians say in modernity, traditionalism as opposed to orthodoxy is stagnant, it's not dynamic. That's what we, we see. And uh, anyway, this was the attraction, the novelty of Hasidism, the injection of dynamism into traditionalism. So you have the charismatic Rebbe versus the boring Rav. Now, he's not boring if you were a big scholar yourself and you could talk on Gemara and all the rest of it. How many are like that? You see what I'm saying? Especially in a small town. How many are like that? So what do you do when you talk to a major egghead or something like this? He's mainly talking, spending 90% of his time talking to five people. Isn't that right? He's spending 90% of his time talking to five people. That's the only way the shaykh do. What are you going to talk to the Katsos about? <laughs> you see? You know? You can't say, looks like it's going to be rain tomorrow. <laughs> you know? Like, you know what, what do you do? You, you, you understand? Uh, but what happens if you get a dynamic reform rabbi who looks like he could exercise influence not only in his narrow constituency? Herein lies a tale. Because traditionalism seemed stagnant and standpat, it didn't have any room for modern sensibilities, particularly in the synagogue. So, you know, if we always spit in show until now, then that's what you always do. Like there's a famous story the Galician rabbi they came to America. America always said, God sounds all American. And so they didn't want to insult him. Tap the bottom of And so, you know, in the old country, you're giving us in the middle of the speech, you go like, because <laughs> the floor is dirt anyway over there. Here is in Baltimore, Maryland. And they already felt like a certain, you know, Mia's uh, kite. It's a very diplomatically put a spittoon. Remember those? A spittoon over here. So they put the spittoon here, he spits over here. And next week, they put a spittoon over here. And then he warned them, he said, if you don't take those nice things away, I'm going to warn you, I'm going to spit right into that. <laughs> now, there is a, a, 
postscript to all this. Alan Abramowitz is moving to Ismik Aliyah. He has various pieces of Jewish art. And one of the things he's got, because he went down when they uh, trashed the old Shomer Mishmeris to turn it into the uh, museum, uh, you know, the Jewish Museum on Lloyd Street. So from the old shul, which was Rabbi Avram Nachman Schwartz, at the, the very religious shul, they had spittoons, you know. So he says, you want one? I said, yeah, I'll take it for a historical kind of thing. My wife said, are you crazy? I said, no, I, I know exactly who wants it, Kenny Friedman. Because he, and, he, and, and he does, and he's got it like in a, no, he's doing it right, because his family was there at that time, and they put it like a work of art, you know, in the living room and all the rest of it. It's a sign of yesteryear. It's a sign of yesteryear. But the point is, uh, you have different sensibilities. There are the traditionalist sensibilities, but then you have modern Western sensibilities. I dare to say, I'm looking around at this audience, and even if I had other people over here, I would imagine most people have Western sensibilities. We wouldn't feel right, I surmise, if somebody walked in the show and blew his nose on the floor or something like that. In the old country, that's what they did. My mother, now we're talking about this, my mother was born in 1912. My mother was born in 1912, time of the Titanic. And that means that she, she was born under Austria-Hungary. But in 1919, no, in the 20s, so there was already Czechoslovakia, modern country. And Czechoslovakia is actually a pro-Semitic country. Get it? Uh, president was Masaryk, who was an Ohev Israel. Very unusual. And so the national holiday, the 4th of July over there was October 28th, I think, which was Masaryk's birthday. And so everybody had a prayer, said, you know, all the shuls. Remember, they used to do that on 4th of July here long ago. So all the, so the Catholics, the Protestants, and the Jewish community also. And the mayor came with his sash, living like this, to show cover to and the, and the governor of the district. And uh, oh, they, so they said they had a show and they had a choir and they sang to Hillam and this and that and the other. And they finished finally, you know, with Elenu. <laughs> the other lady, she and my mother said she wanted to die. Because <laughs> she was already going to a public school, never said a Western. Feeling that they probably didn't even know that they did anything wrong. You see, so keep these ideas in mind. Okay, um, so as I said before, because traditionalism seems stagnant and stand pat, it didn't have any room for modern sensibilities, especially in the synagogue. But there was a growing element, even a minority, that wanted a more Europeanness in their lives and their Jewish practice. This is a function of their modern education and their exposures to European norms. So these people, who live in the heart of Galicia usually in the cities like Lemberg and Krakow and places like that. Uh, they want to dress modern. They didn't want the old-fashioned dress. They wanted German and not Yiddish. Yiddish, especially Galtzianisch, is like a major corruption of German. You know, it grates on the ears if you care about that stuff. Okay? They wanted modernity in the synagogue service, just as was true in Germany, Bohemia, and the West. So uh, I'll use Baltimore language. You know, they wanted better fella. You see, you know, like that. You know, page turners, ushers, dignity, no talking, a formal cousin, a speech, a good speech by, in good English, and so forth and so on. Just transpose that onto that. Uh, because this was certainly true in Baltimore a century ago. Right? All the shuls of yesteryear, most of which have, have gone out of business, at least 30 shuls, and are no longer there, were exactly built in this model. Harzang Tresis, or Beth Jacob, Petach Tikva, I don't know, you know, 
Shari Tefillah, all these shows that once upon a time had their run and then went out of business. I'm sure it must be that way in other communities as well. Now, uh, mind you, we're not talking about German reform like Geiger, in which you tamper with the sitter, you get rid of Sion and all that kind of stuff. None of that, okay? They just wanted the Viennese, right, as they used to call it, right? Uh, some of us have been in, in the Stadt Temple in Vienna, I think. Right? On my last trip, we were there, and Ken was with us there, and the Saxons were there. It's very pretty. It's built like Opera House. Um, it was considered, listen closely, I'm going to say, it was considered by the Hasidim as a reform temple. I'll tell you right now, there was nothing in it that violated Shulchanar. They didn't have an organ. Certainly they didn't have a microphone. There was no mixed seating. The opposite, the women, remember, they have opera seats. And wait a minute. The main thing is like this. It's a big choir. What we had is nothing. First of all, everybody loved it when I was there. But they used to have a choir choir. And a very formal uh, modern sermon in German. So they had what they call Prediger, a preacher. They didn't need a rabbi because if they had a shiloh or something like that, which wasn't often, they were abundant to ask those questions too. The shul actually had a, a rub, but he had no job to do. Those are Horowitz. And uh, this used to be called the Vienna Reform. So I'll say it again. Technically, I mean, they didn't have a bim in the middle. Right. But that's not really ma'akev. No, it's not how lucky, not really. And I'll tell you right now, this was built in the 1820s, and the main guy was Rothschild. And Rothschild said at that time, uh, run it by the Hassam Sofer. Make sure it's okay. I just want you to know. You see? There were more left-wing people. He says, I'm Rothschild, I'm telling you. You run it by him. In other words, let's put it this way. We want to take it up to the edge, but not over the edge. Like in America, they say like this. How low can we make the mechitz? That kind of language. You see? And um, let's go back one. These are the, the preachers. They weren't rabbonim. They didn't claim to be. This is uh, Mannheimer, and this is Yelnick. Famous names once upon a time. This is like having, you know, uh, I don't know, Billy Graham or something like that. You know? It's a, you know, fame, that's, not the, that's the wrong model. Maybe Norman Vincent Peale, something that might be better. You know, famous preachers in German, and by the way, they're actually very good preachers. They knew how to use Midrashim very uh, creatively and things like that. And it's not what people think. In Galicia, this is considered off the deep end. You follow? And there were some shoals that copied this, but then added like an organ or something like that. In Bohemia, you had that. So that was considered going over the line. Even though they said like this, we're not playing it, we have somebody who's not Jewish playing it, and so on. So, you know, it was always, like I said before, you take it as far as you can take it, you see? So this is what you had in Galicia when they, uh, they in Europe they used to call this a show, a show with a choir, okay? And that meant, I repeat, not like in Germany where you actually tamper with the religion, it's the aesthetics that's taken to extreme. I was in Vilna a couple years ago. There's one show left in Vilna, uh, which we were at. That show happened to be the Horst Scholl of Vilna. In other words, the show that's left over was, before the Second World War, the most left-wing advanced show over there. But in America, it'd be called, you know, Best Jacob or something like that. You know, a lot of shows, you know, the, the Harzine, very common. 
Okay, very common. So anyhow, this is what happened over there. Uh, as you see, the next one, now it wasn't the German one exactly. Uh, in Germany, that was Geiger. He wanted to really uproot everything, get rid of all the traditional prayers, replace them with new prayers, abolish bris milah, abolish yontav. These guys say, like, you can have two days of yontav. Maybe I'll go to Shul, maybe I won't. Maybe I'll open my store, maybe I won't. But I'm in favor of traditionalism, you know. I'm not stopping somebody else from going. That's what it was. So what the modern types in Galicia and Krakow and Lemberg and place I got wanted was a modern shul in the aesthetic sense. Decorum, acquire, a sermon in German, Western chazonis, Western chazonis, the Germanic type, not the Eastern European, ah, you know, the, the Ekesha type, right, that sort of thing. Maybe even confirmation classes, God forbid, an afternoon religious school, co-ed, God forbid. These types of Galician Jews appreciated this aesthetic. The Frum, on the other hand, lacked that aesthetic, and they saw it as imitating the chukas agayim, they call it. So it was just simply a chasm. You get it? When people go into this show, some are turned on, some are turned off. That's, that's the point. Now, in Lemberg, this show actually hired a, a genuine reform rabbi, like from the West, who proved to be a real go-getter. It was not a moderate at all. This was Rabbi Abraham Cohn, who became the rabbi in the temple. They call it a temple. It's not like I say, it's not like a German reform temple. That's the word they use to show for a modern show in Lemberg. And eventually, the Austrians even appointed him, after politics, as the Rav of Lemberg, the chief rabbi of the city. Okay? Uh, all I can tell you is that he was a dynamo. He could be a great speaker in German. He criticized the Misnagdom for being stagnant. He criticized the Hasidim for being religiously immature. He criticized the Richie Riches for not lobbying to end the candle taxes. He criticized the communal leader for not trying to bridge, build bridges to the local Christians, the, 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 the Rusanians and the Poles. And when he, his supporters got on the job of uh, chief rabbi of Lemberg, this was a real provocation. Because you have to understand, from the Frum sensibilities, this is a position that was held by all a long line of famous gedolim going back to the 1500s. And now you put a reform rabbi there, it just really ticked them off. And uh, to cut to the chase, Sedechassinim poisoned them. They murdered him. Okay? Put rat poison into food. Now, it's, it's, it's disgusting. This is the one case, the worst case, and the one case of Hasidic violence. It was atypical. Jews usually didn't do this thing. That's why I'm talking about it. It's, it's not what usually happened. Obviously, the guy had a way of ticking people off until uh, they did something outrageous like this. Now, it did happen. I'll say it again. It didn't happen again, but it did happen. This in 1849. And the killers were never punished because there wasn't enough evidence. I mean, it went through the Austrian system. And there was enough evidence to convict them in court. And the reform guys appealed. And there's a whole book. If somebody's interested in it, there's a book. It's a little bit biased by Professor Stanislavski. In, in Colombia called Murder in, in Lemberg. <clears throat> and yeah, he went through all the court records. Although he uh, fudged a little. But anyway, it's, it, it's a, it shows you how strongly people felt, or at least some people felt, on these issues. Uh, now, to be sure, it never happened again, which is an important point to remember. But it is a marker of the old Jewish reality. It was a marker of that, the old Jewish reality, of a united Jewry of Poland, who were all the same, who simply quarreled all the time, 
in a family-like fashion was now a thing of the past. Reformed Judaism, per se, never really did penetrate Galicia. There was a modern shul in Krakow, one in Lemberg, and there were modern shuls in Tarnov, Stanislav, and Shemeshul. That's about it. Okay? So, in a half a dozen towns out of 300 communities, you had this modern shul, which wasn't, as I say before, you know, uh, uh, reform as we understand in America. So what I'm trying to say is like this. All the communities remained officially Orthodox, as you can see over there. These people regarded themselves as modern Orthodox shuls, the way about the fellow would be today. But as we've seen, the synagogue may have been from, that is to say, adhering to the halacha, but the people broke into different factions. And one faction moved to the left, away from the old traditionalism of Torah mitzvahs, to greater Europeanism of one sort or another. At the same time, another faction moved to the right in the opposite direction to Hasidism. The left-wingers sought to integrate into the non-Jewish world in one way or another. They were about to be presented in the great revolutions of 1848. With revolutionary changes in that department in the middle of the 19th century, but the changes would not only present opportunities, the changes, the radical political changes, would also present dangers and complex challenges. But that's for next time. With that, I submit you good night and a good Shabbos.